Hi, and welcome to Dignity Displaced, a podcast by Solidarity Engineering. My name is Chloe Rastatter. And I'm Krista Cook. And we are your co-hosts and two of the founders of Solidarity Engineering, a small grassroots organization that has been working on the U.S.-Mexico border for going on two years now, um, on the Mexican side, in refugee camps and shelters in the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, so we started back in 2020 in Matamoros, where we mostly worked on water sanitation hygiene and stormwater management. And then in 2021, we moved to Reynosa doing similar work, but slightly different. Yeah, and as many of you know, our podcast has been going for about a year now, and we have never really introduced ourselves and our work and, you know, who we are and why you should care what we have to say. So we decided to make this kind of in-between episode as we're transitioning and restructuring the podcast where we are going to basically answer frequently asked questions. We have been interviewed by a number of different journalists, you know, from the New York Times, Newsy, Spectrum One, Brownsville Herald, Border Report, a few other podcasts. And they basically always ask kind of four main questions. And so we figured we'd just outright answer them all because we know you want to know anyway (laughs) um before we get into that though we do have a few housekeeping things we want to address for instance you're hearing me um chloe and i are going to start co-hosting the podcast yeah and you know this podcast from the beginning has really been krista and i's like shared brainchild we have just been in and out of the border kind of cycling dancing around each other a little bit for the past year which you can hear about in our future up episode a year in review so um i think it would be important here to give an overarching timeline of our work so in 2020 um we spent a year in matamoros that's when we formed that's when we did all of our preliminary projects and then in 2021 due to a change of both administration and policy we then migrated to reynosa where we worked there for about a year Um, and where we are still actively working. The populations we're mostly working with are asylum seekers, meaning these are people who are trying to enter the United States legally. Um, They're escaping violence. Um, Often they're persecuted because they may be gay or because they may have different religious affiliations. So they're leaving their countries because they feel that their lives are at threat. And I think it's important to note here that the populations that we work with traditionally would have been able to enter the U.S. and wait out the duration of their case pre-2018 and pre-family separation under Trump. And so there's really been a big change in how the border runs in the past few years. And we're kind of responding to that because before 2018, there was not these massive camps on the Mexican side. But because of border closures under COVID, because of deterrent-based policies like MPP, which you can learn about in some of our previous episodes, there are now hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers living on the Mexican side in shelters, informal tent cities, casitas, a whole bunch of different locations. I think it's also important to note of why asylum exists in the United States legally to begin with. Um, During World War II, the United States turned away a lot of Jewish refugees who were then murdered within concentration camps. So that is how asylum started. And these people, these populations are seeking the same rights that we denied the Jewish people in the 40s. Yeah. And I also just kind of want to iterate off of that a little bit and be very clear that what the U.S. is doing currently 
by closing its border to asylum has been harshly condemned by huge organizations like the UN. And asylum is an internationally recognized human right, which we are currently denying. But yeah, before we get into, you know, the main part of our show where we answer the questions, you know, we want to acknowledge a few things specifically about the podcast and kind of reintroduce it a little bit because we're restructuring it and you can kind of call this, you know, season two. Yeah. So the point of our podcast is absolutely still to share stories of people who are coming to the border and what what their lives are like, but also dive into the history of, of what forced people to leave their countries to make the treacherous journey to the U.S.-Mexico border. So we're going to have essentially two types of episodes, one of them focusing more on the historical context that led people to make this decision to come north, and another one focusing more on stories um, similar to the Matamoros episode where you just hear stories of people's lives here at the border. We're going to continue doing series for specific countries similar to the Guatemala one where you get a deep dive from, you know, multiple different perspectives, experts, lawyers, people in the country themselves, asylum seekers, all of that to kind of give a better understanding, at least in modern history, what has happened to cause people to flee. And then we also want to continue bringing stories from where we're working at now because we spend multiple days a week in Mexico in these camps and shelters. And our main thing, you know, is working in humanitarian aid and providing direct relief. And so the podcast is kind of an outlet to share some of the really powerful stories that we are surrounded by day in and day out. And that major media outlets often overlook. So we thought we're here anyways. We're working with uh, with all the asylum seekers anyways. Why not bring their stories to a broader to a broader audience? Yeah. So we're really excited for kind of the next phase of the podcast. As you can probably hear, we got new, new microphones. Mics. Yes, we knew our audio was bad this whole time. We did know. Thank you for letting us know multiple times. We're familiar. <laughs> we, we, we knew. Um, we were extremely broke in a brand new organization when we bought those microphones, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But thank you to all of our amazing Patreon subscribers who have been giving us monthly donations. So we were finally able to really invest in some equipment. And also on top of that, in the coming months, we're going to be expanding our podcast team. We have recently been working with really closely with one of the asylum seekers we met in Matamoros. Her name is Angie. She was a translator for Global Response Management. She's been she's joined our podcast team. Thank you, Angie. We love having you. And we're also going to be adding a few podcast interns through CU Boulder throughout the summer and next fall. So we're really excited. So they're really going to help us lighten the load because there's so much put to this podcast that happens behind the scenes, such as transcribing, translating, um, doing the interviews themselves, editing all of them. So with this expanded team, we hope to get podcasts out a little bit more on time. Yeah, we're still probably going to keep around once a month. But, you know, like Chris and I were saying, this is a side thing. Um, we do a lot on the ground, which we are actually going to talk to about today in our Frequently Asked Questions. So. so over the next few months, you can expect to hear the fourth and final episode of the Guatemala series. Um, we're going to also start a mini series on Honduras. We are going to share a year in review. And we also have, in recognition of Women's History Month, we're going to give an update in Reynosa, all based off of women's perspectives. So yeah, that'll be our episode out next month. Um, but until then, let's get into our frequently asked questions. Frequently asked questions. <laughs> <laughs> 
So um, one of the first questions we always get is how we met. Yeah, so Solidarity Engineering is a woman-founded, woman-led organization that was founded by myself, Krista, and our third, Erin Hughes. And we actually all met at the border in 2020 through a podcast, believe it or not. And rewind, before we met in 2019, This American Life released an episode called The Out Crowd that went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for audio journalism. It was the first ever podcast to win a Pulitzer Prize. And this episode was focused on MPP, Migrant Protection Protocols, which you can hear more about in our Reynosa episode, One Camp Closes and Another One Opens. And it focused on the formation of this ad hoc refugee camp in Matamoros that started forming in 2019. And one of the main, one of the first interviews was with the executive director at the time of Global Response Management, GRM, Helen Perry. And she was just outlining how the camp had no clean water and there weren't enough bathrooms and Ira Glass, you know, we love you, Ira. Ira. (laughs) You've changed our lives. Um, Literally. Ira Ira Glass asked Helen if she had ever done anything with clean water before. And she was like, no, but I'll Google it. And, you know, we all heard this in our separate lives. I was finishing my undergrad in chemical and biological engineering and neuroscience at CU Boulder. So I was living in Boulder, Colorado. I was living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania as a grad student at Villanova. And then our third, Erin, was also living in Philly, but didn't know Krista at all. And she was working her professional engineering job with the Philadelphia Water Department. And we all individually heard Helen outlining these engineering problems, right? Clean water and bathrooms are direct wash, water sanitation and hygiene problems. And we all individually reached out to GRM being like, hey, we heard this podcast and we're wondering, you know, we're an engineer, like I'm an engineer, how can I help? And we all got the same kind of answer of there's no engineering presence down at the border, but we could all, we could come and, you know, see what's going on and see how we could help. So now we're in summer of 2020, where all three of us are in Matamoros at the time. We had all just met each other, again, through Global Response Management. But as they're a medical organization, they didn't have a lot we could do for them. So us three just started working together, um, really pulling from our previous experience. So basically how we met. So we all heard this podcast and then we all individually came down to the border and it was honestly the right place, right time. Erin was taking a sabbatical off of her job about a year where she was originally going to go back, you know, and work for the Philly Water Department um, following her year of living at the border. I had just lost my job because of COVID. And I had just graduated from Villanova with my master's in sustainable engineering. I had a job lined up, but again, because of COVID, that got canceled. So I came back down to the border. I had previously been there um, in 2019, and I thought, why not go back? Yeah. And so a lot of things happened, but basic between, you know, when we met and when we formalized, but basically kind of to put it in a nutshell is we all heard a podcast, we quit our jobs or quit our lives and moved to the border. A week turned into a month, a month turned into a summer, a summer turned into solidarity engineering. Solidarity engineering. So that's kind of how we met. Um, and now I guess the next natural question most people ask is how did we formalize? Yeah. It's a, a lot happened. A bit of a loaded question. A bit of a loaded question because from we knew each other for three months before we decided to formalize and a lot happened in those three months. 
before we get into exactly what happened, I think it's helpful to kind of set the stage and give a little context to where we were working. Matamoros was a camp that at its lowest had 700 people, at its highest had 3,500 people, and it was in the flood zone of the city of Matamoros, which meant it was designed to flood in order to save the rest of the city. And also keep in mind, Matamoros, this camp, was on the Rio Grande, which was right across from the United States. From this camp, you can see the United States. You can see Brownville, Texas. Yeah. And not only is this place that was this camp in a specifically dangerous and environmentally speaking location, it also was not recognized by the UN. This camp and all the places that we work in along the border do not have support from the UN because the UN must be invited by the host country. And Mexico hasn't invited them. Yeah, so since the UN wasn't present, it was basically up to individuals and organizations to just kind of show up. And if nobody showed up, then no resources were going to be provided. And so Aaron, Kristen, and I all met in the summer of 2020, which is storm season there. And so our first kind of major project that we focused on was stormwater. Yeah. And the reason this is so important is because if you have a big hurricane event and then all that water just stands around, now you have a breeding ground for mosquitoes, obviously known for spreading all sorts of diseases. And more than that, if you don't have stormwater directed correctly, then it's just going to flood out the entire camp and it's going to become a mud pit. And keep in mind, everybody's living in a tent, so it's not just a mud pit outside of their homes. It's very easy for it to come into their homes as well. Yeah. So we spent the summer, you know, trying to address the stormwater led by our wonderful PE, Erin Hughes, whose background was in stormwater management. That's what she was doing with the Philly Water Department. And we did a whole bunch of projects. We started with drainage ditches. That was number one. And then it just kind of grew. After drainage ditches came gravel and then building pallets to raise people's tents. And that's really the kind of the context that we started to get to know each other. But there was this looming threat this entire time of what if a hurricane happens? Because we're in the flood zone of Montemoros and we are entering hurricane season. Now enter Hurricane Hannah in July 2020. Worst case scenario. Well, not worst case scenario because it was a category one hurricane. But it was this thing that we had been dreading for so long of what are we going to do with these, you know, it was over a thousand people at at that time. What are we going to do with them if this camp floods? And Aaron had spent the past six months at that point designing a a flood risk plan, essentially. Um, so that leads us to the hurricane. Um, the, this hurricane caused a big riff and more a big lack of a big lack of trust between the American led NGOs and the asylum seekers themselves, because the Americans were very much of the opinion that we should evacuate the camp because from the American perspective, a hurricane's coming. Best thing we can do is evacuate. However, the asylum seeker perspective was way more. We need to stay here. We don't want to be forgotten about. You also have to keep in mind that there is huge mistrust in this population in general. They don't want to get put into buses and bust somewhere because there is not confidence that they're not going to get deported because that has happened. And so we didn't realize all of this context at the time. We didn't realize all the complexities. And basically what happened is American NGOs tried to evacuate the camp because it was going to, there was, it was going to flood and it did flood, but it flooded inch by inch. You know, you could watch the water slowly increase over 
about two weeks. Whereas we were really worried for a flash flood, which would have picked up people and taken them down river. So the long and the short of it is the asylum seekers did not have a place at the table to help make decisions when it came to hurricane response. So that's where we came up with the name Solidarity Engineering, which was to remind ourselves that we are not serving the asylum seekers, we are working with them directly. And the point of that is to give them a seat at the table, us a seat at the table. And by us, I mean um, NGOs, local missionaries, local government, and basically make sure that their voices were being heard in decision-making spaces. Yeah, and I think it was a huge lesson learned. I mean, it's so, it feels so obvious now to be like, of course you can't make decisions for other people. But when there's so much pressure in such a high-intensity situation, it's really easy to forget that. And so, you know, after the hurricane happened and clearly mistakes were made, it was very obvious. The asylum seekers made it very clear. And, you know, we, we knew there was mistakes being made. Krista and I started just, you know, chatting about casually lessons learned like if we were in this same situation again what would we do different and then it was like well this is all just you know floating floating ideas around because you know we were just individuals volunteering at the time and Erin was actually this whole time at her she was on vacation with her husband and so Chris and I start going back and forth of you know well we could have done this this different in the future we would do this this and then we're like what well why don't we make a future Yeah. So that's when we decided to formalize as a group. And by formalize, we essentially mean file paperwork to become an official recognized NGO. Yeah. And so we named ourselves Solidarity Engineering and we made our logo a shovel because our first project was digging drainage ditches. And how that started was literally just picking up, buying a few shovels, picking them up and starting digging. And people, the asylum seekers just joined in. So we made the logo, Solidarity Engineering, and then we we picked lavender. We picked lavender. (laughs) Which is, you know, it's it's a wink at the women before us because there's there's no way we would be able to operate in this space had the women's suffrage movement not happened, had Me Too and Neonomenos happened. So it really was just kind of a ode to the to the women before us who made us able to enter the space to begin with. Yeah, and for those who don't know, purple and you know, therefore lavender, are is a one of the main colors of the women's suffrage movement in the U.S. and in the feminist movement all throughout Latin America. So it is extremely symbolic and it's just a beautiful color. Yeah. Lavender rocks. So that leads to the next main question we usually get, which is what do we do? Yeah. So cool. You formalized. You met a stranger. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And now what? Yeah. (laughs) And so what do we do? We do a lot. I think before we can really get in too much what we do we kind of have to introduce who we are because believe it or not we had a whole ass life before (laughs) Before we moved before we moved here and started an NGO and quit our jobs um yeah we had whole lives and so we Aaron Krista and I all have pretty diverse backgrounds and I think that's why we worked so well together as a team we all brought very different ideas and skill sets to the table Uh, we were very complimentary us three as a group for instance my background is really more in wash water sanitation and hygiene Um, I did, I got my undergrad in civil engineering. Um, I then worked for a civil engineering firm for about a year where I then joined the Peace Corps in Peru where I learned Spanish. Um, and I was also a wash engineer there. So I learned a lot about the wash fields. Um, and then after that, I went to Villanova to do my master's in sustainable engineering. So I walking into this space, I had some field work, 
a good amount of education and I was just ready to get my hands dirty with um, other people who were interested in this work. Yeah. And then as far as I go, you know, I'm the young one of the group. I actually was still in university for the first year that we decided to do this, which was quite a roller coaster finishing school remotely. But my background is quite a bit different. Aaron and Krista both have much more. They both they're environmental and civil for and for those who are not in the engineering world, your background for environmental and civil, a lot of the time there's a good amount of overlap. My background was in chemical and biological engineering, which is designing medicines, which is an extremely expensive process, and neuroscience. And so I came into it bringing a skill set that was a little bit different because I had that neuroscience background, which I had gotten specifically to focus on the effects of trauma and mental health because I'd worked in refugee spaces before, before I worked in Greece at two different camps and then I had also worked during my time in college with a few different resettlement agencies in the U.S. So I had a pretty thorough understanding at the time of coming in as to what the general system is, what are some of the barriers that people overcome, how does the system work overall. And then Erin, obviously, she's a professional engineer in stormwater, so she brought that to the table that both Chloe and I do not have that background. So given these three skill sets, we started working on various projects. So of course, one of the first things that we tackled outside of stormwater was wash, water sanitation and hygiene. Yeah, but building, you know, one of the main things about our organization is we're extremely community-based. So although we started with stormwater and wash, one of our pillars is talking to the community about what do they see as necessary and what do they prioritize? Because it's not always obvious to us. Almost in fact, in fact, it's almost never obvious to us because we don't live there. We don't understand. We are able to cross back into the U.S. every day. And so our scope has really ballooned since then. And that comes back to the lessons learned from the hurricane. Uh, the people living in these environments know their needs way better than we do. And we just realized we shouldn't make assumptions about what people need. In fact, we should just ask them what they need, let them come up with a plan and we support them as much as possible. Yeah. And so we really ballooned into a few different things, but we, if we were to kind of break down, I think our major quote unquote sections of projects, it's wash, water, sanitation, hygiene, Infrastructure and general stormwater, education outreach, and the podcast. But all of those like subcategories are just so much more. Like they're huge projects within themselves. So when it comes to WASH, again, water, sanitation, and hygiene, you're going to hear this acronym a lot throughout this podcast. Um, this is a relatively easy to understand as to why we need this. And what do you just explain to everyone what exactly WASH infrastructure looks like? Sure. Yeah. So wash infrastructure is basically how do we get people potable water? How do we get them access to sanitation? And hygiene is oddly, it sounds like the easiest one, but it's by far the dip, most difficult one because it has a lot to do with behavior change and access to things like soap, which in a refugee camp is often very hard to find. Yeah. And just to be clear, sanitation is bathrooms and hygiene is shower, clothes, washing stations, basic, basic stuff that everybody needs to live. Right. And these all play a part into a broader public health approach, essentially. 
because the the point of wash is to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. The whole idea is to prevent diseases to begin with, so that way there's just less of a need for medical care. Um, and this is particularly um, important to us as a group. As an all-female-led group, we are highly interested in how these settings affect women. And WASH particularly disproportionately affects women because who's usually in charge of making sure the kid can go to the bathroom to make sure that um, water is available in the household? So a lot of the WASH work ends up falling on the shoulders of women. And as an all-female group, of course, we want to support women as much as possible in these spaces because not only does the WASH work fall on them, they're also the most vulnerable because they're in spaces of extreme violence kidnapping, rape, extortion. This happens to many people in these spaces, but particularly women. Yeah. And so I think one of our strengths of being a women-led organization is we, you know, academically, everybody knows that you need access to water, sanitation, hygiene, like you just need it to live. But in practice, people forget the small details that really make a difference. For example, having locking doors in showers. Lights. Lights. Where are women alone and most vulnerable? Bathrooms. And we have really integrated into our approach this like very women conscious. How do we keep women at least marginally more safe in places that are extremely dangerous? Another important side note of WASH is the movement of water, not only moving it into these spaces, but then now you have what we call black water, water from sanitation and gray water runoff basically from showers, clothes washing stations, hand washing sinks. Um, But what do you do with that water in a camp that has no connection to a city grid? So that is another big part of WASH is just moving water into these spaces and then safely managing them out of these spaces. Yeah. And it's, you know, the places that we work in are not easy. (laughs) Like to be (laughs) particularly not easy. They're particularly not easy. There's a lot of pushback from different actors, whether that be organized crime, whether that be government, whether that be you know, just lack of money, the resources are extremely limited. And so, you know, our solutions in general are actually relatively simple. It's like, oh, we're just going to raise a tank and then gravity feed it into the showers so we don't have to use a pump. But when you actually get into the details of it, like, where's that water going to come from? Who's going to pay for it? How are you going to afford for the pumps to pump it up? Where's that water going to go? And there's a lot of there's so many moving parts to these camps and shelters and there's so many organizations trying to meet so many needs and wash is one of the most important ones. It's one of the first things that go into camps as they're being built. But it's also one of the least sexy projects. (laughs) Everybody wants to build a school. Everyone wants to provide medicine, but who wants to deal with poop? Who wants to take care of sanitation? We do. (laughs) That's us. That's what we do. That's what we do. So that's kind of like our main, our main thing is wash, but we do a whole lot more than that. I I think it's also important to mention here that um, the asylum seekers themselves come from many different countries many different backgrounds. So there's also a layer of social complexity that we have to address in these solutions, making sure essentially that no one group feels like they have been excluded in any way. Um, And water obviously is needed by everybody. So tensions can be high if one group feels that they have more access to water than the other. Wash is something that, you know, we dedicate a lot of our time to. One, because it's so important. And two, even though the UN 
is not here. There are set standards that the UN follows and makes public. They're called sphere standards. And so we have goals of how much water to be providing, how many bathrooms to be providing, but we are literally never at standards ever because we're just so low resource. And I would also like to emphasize here, not only low resources financially, but low resources on space. There's very little space. The land that people are on is extraordinarily limited. We have to walk the line of how much infrastructure to provide versus how much space. Because realistically speaking, the more infrastructure you build, the less people can live in that area, in that community, behind that wall with other asylum seekers, because there is safety in numbers. So... So that's that's wash. That's wash. That's one of our our main projects, arguably our our principal projects. However, we also focus on infrastructure and how we mentioned earlier, stormwater. Yeah, and infrastructure is that encompasses a lot because although we're engineering, our overall goal is to better public health and public health is mental health as well. And we really try to include that in our approach. Like for example, We built a playground in Matamoros because there were so many kids who had nothing to do. And with so many kids with nothing to do comes a lot of time that the adults have to put in to watch their kids. And the power of play is cannot be understated. And it's also a human right. Also, another thing to point out about kids having their own space is without that, they are often susceptible to adults taking advantage of them. Yeah. So I think that through our time, we've really prioritized providing infrastructure specifically for kids. So for example, we built a playground in Matamoros. We're hoping to build another one in our new location, the baseball field. We built a school in Matamoros. Um, Another note on infrastructure is this is another simple yet very effective solution, which is shade. You wouldn't necessarily think that shade is so important, but where in Mexico it is hot, you're living in a tent, Um, overheating is real. So building roofs has been actually a pretty big part of our job and oddly one of the most impactful parts of our job. Yeah. So infrastructure is really like a wide range because it goes from playgrounds all the way to roofs that are used for clinics, for medical. With infrastructure though, it's not just actually building it. It is site planning because when space is so limited, you have to really think through where is everything going to go and realistically how how much stuff can we put in here? And how can we do it in the most efficient manner? Yeah, so we use, we, you know, throw the drone up in the air pretty regularly around (laughs) Reynosa into these different locations and take imagery and are able to map on those, on the drone imagery, you know, exact site plans and bring them not only to people like Pastor Hector, who will be managing the camp, but to the asylum seekers themselves who are helping build it and who will live in it to get their feedback about what's missing. How could we better think about this? So infrastructure and site planning is a very iterative process because we'll bring an idea. We'll ask different leaders in that space, including religious leaders like Hector, um, the asylum seekers themselves, and the other NGOs who are contributing to these spaces. We'll take their feedback. We'll make the next site plan. And it's iterative like that. We go back and forth until we find something that everybody can agree on. Yeah. And with infrastructure and the site plan, you can't really disentangle stormwater from it. Um, because you have to plan infrastructure around stormwater. 
The next um, major pillar of what we do is education outreach. Education, education, education. Um, honestly, this started because we had very little money and it was a very cheap project for us to do. We had no money. Let's <laughs> rephrase. We had no money. Um, it was a very cheap project to do and it was not only was it very beneficial for the kids because they really don't have a lot of access to formal education. And this was an introduction to STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. But we realized that this really helped get community f- feedback. Um, community members definitely saw us teaching their kids. And now they were much more likely to approach us with different ideas, which is how the park got built. Um, one of the women saw us in the school and she asked us to build the park. We said, let's do it. Um, and this is really kind of what brought us back to the roots of solidarity engineering. That community feedback is truly what we're looking for. And this, the, the STEM outreach really helped us gain trust back in the community after the Hurricane Hannah fiasco. Yeah. And I think, you know, we started it because we had no money and we have made it kind of a staple in a lot of locations that we work at because really these kids who are stuck in these camps are the future of our country undoubtedly and there is so many kids and so many kids and they're they're kids they're eager to learn they want to be taught they um really want their own space so it's kind of like why not we have the skill set let's do it what started as teaching stem classes in matamoros really has bloomed into bloomed into kind of a broader goal and a lot of broader ideas, including long-term thinking of how, cause this is a huge problem. Migration is incredibly disruptive to people's access to education. So that's when we started another project using the Raspberry Pi, which is a microcontroller, basically a very cheap mini computer. Yeah, it's a single chip computer. Um, and this, what's nice about this is you don't need Wi-Fi. It in fact emits its own Wi-Fi network. It's extremely cheap. Oh yeah. It's extremely cheap. Part. It's like 30 <laughs> bucks. Yeah, it's, it's the, the very best part. Cheap. Yeah. Um, it emits its own Wi-Fi network. So any device, smartphone, tablet, computer can connect to that network and download any of the educational resources that are on there again, without access to internet. So that has been particularly helpful in this context because internet is a very scarce resource. Major shout out to all of our Solidarity Pi uh, volunteers. Y'all rock. We're still working on the technology end of it and we're going to be piloting it in Reynosa soon. But the idea is if someone doesn't have Wi-Fi connection or, you know, data, they can just connect to this computer directly and not lose the materials they previously had access to too because not only are people making really long journeys from their home country to the border they're also moving along the border a lot because the border is closed and there's a lot of volatility so the idea is this would help bridge the gap and lastly one of the main things that we do is this podcast the podcast oh the podcast as it's clear Krista and I are engineers and those who have listened to the podcast from start to finish have probably figured out that we have learned a lot of pot about how to podcast over time very much amateurs we're very much amateurs but the reason we started getting into podcasting to begin with is we you know we're reading articles coming out of Montemoros at the time and basically how media works down here a lot of the time is reporters who are not from this area will fly down and cross for a day maybe two, get some interviews and then publish their pieces but 
the situations down here are often so complex that it's really hard to come down and get a thorough understanding of what's going on in one or two one or two days and Chris and I started reading pieces where yes it was right factually factually but it wasn't what we would say or you know what the asylum seekers would even say about the situation and of course mainstream media plays a huge role because they're bringing this issue to a much broader audience than we are able to however we thought let's start this podcast because we want to tell more day-to-day stories about what it's like living in a refugee camp from people who are living it Also, we really wanted to kind of humanize this population. They are not helpless. They come with many sets of skills, all sorts of personalities, and we just wanted to share their stories directly with the American audience. Yeah, and, you know, the podcast is one of my favorite and simultaneously least favorite projects (laughs) that we do because I think it's really, I love the end product. I think we get a lot of really positive feedback, but it's, honestly emotionally very difficult because what the podcast kind of turned into was us asking you know we would collect these interviews and then we would be like okay but why you know like we would get these people's stories and it was we started asking ourselves why did it happen this way why has this situation reached to the point that it is and that's kind of where the country country um miniseries came from is asking answering the why and what the why comes uncomfortable history it come comes with it you know uncomfortable realizations about how our world works I guess yeah and so now welcome to our podcast dignity displaced so yeah obviously we kind of have our hands in basically a little bit of everything but I think right now is a really important time to in- mention that we are just one part of an overall collaborative and we would not function without all of the strong partnerships that we have between other organizations, other churches, other aid groups that we work with day in, day out. If it wasn't for these strong partnerships, both when we were working in Matamoros and now where we're working in Reynosa, our work would not be possible. Our overall goal in this work is to reduce human suffering, obviously by providing basic needs such as water, education, sanitation, and hygiene. Um, It is ultimately up to the United States government about who crosses. We are simply supporting people while they're waiting on the Mexican side. Yeah, we're just trying to make people's lives, you know, more livable and... We don't really have anything to do with crossing or any of the the legal type of stink stuff. It's very, water is water. Water is life. Water is life. And uh, it's unfortunate that people look at our work as political in the sense that providing water shouldn't be political. Giving somebody access to basic sanitation shouldn't be a political issue. And finally, our fourth and, and last least favorite question. question. <laughs> it's the least favorite. It's the least favorite, but we know you're all asking. What's What's it like like to be women women in this space? space? I think being women is actually one of our biggest strengths. When people ask us this question, it's very, you know, it took us a long time to figure out how to answer it because when people ask us questions, a lot of times it feels like, so what, what challenges did you have? And it's like, ask any woman. I'm having the same challenges. Like, we get it. But it's actually one of the strongest points of our organization because it really increases the amount of people who are comfortable to come to us and be included in the projects and give feedback. I think another big strength about being um, females in this space is other women feel like we're going to actually listen to them and not write off their concerns and their worries. 
So for instance, um, there was this amazing woman, Perla. <laughs> Perla. She is the best. She is just a powerhouse. She was an asylum seeker um, from Matamoros. And she asked all the NGOs um, about building a school. And finally, she came to us again. This was before we were formalized. The, so we were still kind of just like three engineers running around doing stuff. Um, so she finally came to us and said, can y'all build a school? We said, absolutely. The day the school gets built, we're in a WhatsApp group with her. She starts sending pictures of playgrounds. So she was really wanting to create safe spaces for children. So I think women feel more comfortable approaching us, not only because we're also women, but because they think they'll be listened to hopefully a little bit better. And I think because we're all women, we maybe prioritize projects a little bit differently if we were, you know, a group of men, for example, the playgrounds, yes, that's not really engineering, but the impact that that has on kids and women cannot be understated. So just to talk about that a little bit more, we built this this playground really with the idea, obviously, to give kids a space to play and grow, but it ended up turning into um, a bit of a, a woman's liberation to be able to go to work because before... Um, women had their kids with them 24 seven cause there was no space for them to go to. Um, and after the, this playground had a fence around it and it had a playground attendant. So it sort of became a daycare, which freed up women's time to pursue other opportunities. Yeah. And so being women, being in a, a woman founded organization to me is one of my favorite parts about us. I think it allows for more flexibility in our thought of what can what does engineering mean in this space because in the reality of speaking this is something we talk about a lot and joke about is like we're not really doing a lot of technical engineering you know we're not designing some reactor or something crazy but we're expanding what engineering can mean and I think it's a, another huge benefit that we're not overly technical because we need simple solutions. We need things that are not overly complicated because this is a transitionary population. So we need every group who's coming in to be able to understand the system. So if we keep it very simple and intuitive, then it's more likely to, to actually function. And to be frank, women are disproportionate disproportionately affected in these spaces and so always having other women at the forefront of our minds when we implement projects is so incredibly important for their safety for the functionality of the camp for everything I think that one other thing another thing to kind of know is we are not the only women in this space this is an incredibly women dominated space both in the American NGO side of things and in the Mexican asylum seeker side of things some of our most successful projects like the hygiene teams in Reynosa like the park like the school were led by women asylum seekers and I think be like Chris said earlier because we are women they're more likely to come to us with their ideas and we're more likely to hear it so yeah with that it's kind of you know our frequently asked questions that we have answered a million times and now you all can kind of get a little bit better of an idea as to who we are and why we are making this podcast and why maybe you should listen to us or support our work so if you are interested in continuing listening to this podcast we've got a lot of great episodes coming out over the next few months we have an episode with a Guatemalan woman uh, where she details her journey from Guatemala to Matamoros. 
Um, that will be the fourth and final episode of the Guatemala series. We also will be starting a Honduras series. Uh, we, as previously mentioned, will be doing a year in review where you can hear a little bit about what our first year as an NGO was like. It uh, was crazy. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of up and downs. It was a lot of up and downs. Yeah, we're going to be doing a update in Reynosa, kind of letting go run. It's almost a follow-up from the first episode in Reynosa where we talked about the camp closing. The situation has developed a lot in the past few months, and in honor and recognition of March being Women's History Month, we're going to release an episode that lets everybody know exactly what's going on on the ground, but solely from the perspective of women. So with that, uh, thank you for so much for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and got something out of it or are interested in our work, please, please, please consider sharing it with a friend, subscribing on our Patreon, Solidarity Engineering, following us on Instagram at Solidarity Engineering, going to our website, solidarityengineering.org. We are a small grassroots organization, so all donations you know, go directly into supporting our projects that you heard about today, directly to providing water, STEM classes, all of those type of things. And... I think now's a great time to kind of shout out a lot of major support that we've had from a lot of different people in the past year. So a huge shout out, a big thank you to Dave Rastatter, Rachel Manring, Jordan Ermilio, Vero Cardenas, Jennifer Harbury, Bernard Amade, Bill Corey, Hector De Silva, Brendan Tucker, and the whole JRM crew, Adam Arispaha, Wesley Ansel Howard Trugart Schmidt, Angie Matos, Siobhan Merrill, Dison Valladeras, Perla Vargas, Mario Sabillo, Gabby Zavala, and everyone else who has helped and worked with us along the way. We wouldn't be here without y'all. So thanks. Catch us next month. Tune in live and direct. <laughs> <laughs> it's live and direct from the birdhouse. <laughs>